This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Yusim, Director of the Center for Leadership and Change and Faculty Director of the McNulty Leadership Program. And we're joined today by Anne Greenhall, Greenhall, who is the Deputy Director of the McNulty Leadership Program and a good friend. I want to remind everybody that episodes of our show premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. So fresh off a speaking engagement at the University of Pennsylvania's Fells Institute of Government, today's guest is going to talk with us about building bridges across groups, issues to get things done and help our nation heal. Before I introduce our guest though, as is our tradition, and I'm gonna ask us to take literally one minute to talk about the week that was mm. and the leadership ideas therein. So first to you and then over to me on that one. Oh, thank you, Mike. Uh, well, Mike, <laughs> yesterday uh, we saw a leadership moment and that was that our president, Amy Gutman, issued mm. a statement announcing that Penn will begin to reopen slowly, welcome <laughs> faculty and staff mm back to campus as of July 1st, and that we will anticipate uh, students in classrooms and residence halls, and that they students will be required to be vaccinated. Uh, those that are unable to be vaccinated will need to come to campus, get their vaccine and quarantine for two weeks. So, you know, leadership moments, I realize trickle down, Mike, because I now have had the experience of uh, pivoting from in-person instruction to entirely virtual. And now I realize I'm going to need to pivot again and figure out how to do what we call hybrid instruction. In other words, synchronous instruction in which some of my students may be absent and may be remote and others will be in person. You know, in my mind, this could be the worst of both worlds because you've got one foot on the platform and one on the train. But I'm looking at this, Mike, as a challenge, an opportunity to figure out how to do this well. And so that's going to be my leadership challenge in the in the upcoming fall. All right, how about Anna, you, Mike? I I, I really I, I love well much of what you all of what you said, but I want to pick up in particular on the word pivot. Ah. And I think it's almost a truism, but it's worth restating that in a leadership position, uh, we've often got to make big changes quickly. Agility is vital and pivot is a pretty good word of, uh, for, for capturing that and referencing what we've done and what we're going to have to do again. And I think it's uh, in, in our own specific ways, it's going to be vital for our leadership and our classes to be able to shift gears almost on a dime that, that uh, indeed uh, looks like it's coming. So with that said, uh, and very good to see you. And I now have the privilege of introducing uh, Sue Uran, who is the president and chief executive of the Pew Charitable Trust. Sue, welcome to Leadership in Action. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, really great to have you here for many reasons. 
including the fact that you run one of America's largest nonprofit organizations, uh, formerly a foundation, but I think officially now a nonprofit organization, which goes back almost 75 years. I know you're coming up on your 75th uh, fairly soon. I think many people listening to the program will know the term or the phrase, the name, Pew Charitable Trust. But let's begin by just uh, having you say a few words about um, the fact, first of all, that there's a S at the end of trust, um, reflecting your, your own itinerary. And if you could say just a, a few words about uh, your commitment, your endowment, your annual revenue or the annual run rate and, and what you support uh, to give people a feel for what you do lead. So over to you, Sue. Well, thanks very much. Um, yes, the Pew Charitable Trust is a global nonprofit. Um, we work both domestically and internationally on primarily research and policy issues, although not exclusively. Um, we, we are, I think, just a little north of a thousand employees right now. Um, our main offices are in Philadelphia and in Washington, but we have smaller satellite offices in London and Chile and Portland in Australia, um, where we're doing really sort of intensive work. Um, I think our budget runs around 300 million a year. Most of that goes out the door to program in one way, shape or form. Um, and let's see, our, our endowment is, I think around five and a half billion dollars. I haven't looked recently, but um, yes. And the reason there's an S on the end of trust um, is that our endowment was funded by um, seven different trusts that members of the Pew family provided um, when the foundation was established about almost 75 years ago. And Sue, as I recall, uh, the name Pew goes back to Sun Oil Company. So if you could offer just a, a couple sentences on where the money originated with that company and, and the family's engagement um, in, first of all, setting up the various trusts and the family engagement, if any, in the endowment now. Sure. Um, yes, the, uh, the, the Sun, Oil, um, Sun Oil, which was Philadelphia based, um, was the source of the, the endowment that was created um, that made the few charitable trusts. And I think the family has been um, a really critical part of overseeing hmm. the governance of the institution since its inception. Um, we have family members on the board today. I don't envision a time we will not have family members on the board, but it's worth noting that one of the um, more interesting things is when the trusts were established, it was there weren't a lot of um, restrictions. It wasn't um, it, there wasn't a very tight structure that said you will <laughs> provide money for A, B, C, D, and E, and you'll do um, X, Y, and Z with it. Mm -hmm. Instead, there was a, a fair amount of trust invested in future generations of the institution to be able to find ways to use the money to support the public interest for issues that were really critically um, relevant at the time. Wow. Thank you on that. So you've been with the Charitable Trust now for 25 years. And I'm gonna take it a little more personal in direction. When you first began uh, more than a couple of years ago, did you ever imagine that you would one day be the chief executive? No, um, when I first came and I came to the Pew, which was then only based in Philadelphia and, and was not particularly well known nationally, I came from Minnesota. Um, it's not typical to leave Minnesota and I was only gonna stay about a year. <laughs> 
I rented mm. out my house in Minnesota. I was very unsure about whether I wanted to put down roots on the East Coast. It felt very foreign to me. Um, it's the first time I had lived outside Minnesota. And so without an anticipation of one day becoming the chief executive, let's go back a few years, maybe about 15 years, as you grew in responsibility, took on more of the strategy of, of the enterprise involved in a whole range of programs. Meanwhile, uh, the charitable trusts are evolving and what they're doing as well. If you could just go back and reference uh, a couple of your mentors along the way that helped you evolve from who you were when you first arrived to the fact that you run the whole show now. Um. Well, I have to I have to point to my boss um, over the years. I worked for the same person, Rebecca Rimel, for over 20 years. And that's it's a really unusual, I don't even I think realize how unusual it is, A, to stay in a place as long as I have, but B to have the same um, reporting relationship. And um, Rebecca is um, absolutely brilliant and worked with the board to create Pew in the sort of the, the shape that it has today to, to build it from a, a sort of a local focused foundation to a national and international nonprofit. So for me, Rebecca was was very much a mentor and, and she did me the enormous favor of having a, enough confidence in me um, about every three years to give me something new to do. So just about the time that I would start getting a little bit twitchy about maybe I was a little bored and I knew how to do what I was doing and maybe I needed to find something else somewhere else, she would say, why don't you do this? And it would be a whole new start. So um, that's part of the reason I stayed as long as I did. And I have to give Rebecca a lot of credit for that. Great, thanks. Let's bring Ann in. Ann, jump in. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Mike. And Sue, really such a pleasure and honor to have a chance to speak with you. I'm going to pick up uh, where you and Mike left off. And you spoke about Rebecca and how you admired the way she worked with the board and helped turn Pew into a, a more global organization rather than local. May I ask you a little bit about the current board composition? You mentioned that there are family members and that there always will be. Who else, not necessarily name names, but what sorts of people are on your board? <laughs> it's, a, it's a sort of an eclectic mix of folks who come from different walks of life. And I think we feel it's very important around the board table to have diverse perspectives. So you have diverse political perspectives, diverse backgrounds and experiences. We have former CEOs of large organizations. Um, we have, we have, we have a doctor, we have um, just a, a lawyer, um, just a, a really interesting mix of people. And for the type of work that Pew does, which is a whole, you know, we're not a we're not an environment organization, we're not an education organization. We 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 do a mix of topics in a, and and have different strategies and tactics as we take on different problems. Um, it's wonderful to have a board with a variety of perspectives because it really helps us stress test the issues that we, we are thinking about taking on in a very helpful way. Um, and it's, it's for me, it's a wonderful resource of people when, um, as any CEO does, you're struggling with some of the governance and management issues of the institution to have you know, thoughtful people to bounce things off. Mike, if there's time for just one follow-up. Yeah, go for it, Ann. <laughs> All right, very good. Sue, um, can you speak a little bit about how you work with the board? Now, Mike's the pro here. He's written a book called Boards That Lead, but I'm going to ask you how you think about your relationship with the board. 
Yeah, that, that was uh, an interesting sort of, it's been an interesting part of, of becoming CEO was, was just um, the amount of, the amount of time and energy that it takes to really develop a good working relationship with the board. I mean, I had one, I've known them for a very long time, but how do you engage the board in a thoughtful and a strategic way um, at a level of governance that's appropriate for the board? What's the CEO's role? What's the board's role? Yeah. Um, and how do you really have thoughtful yeah. and engaged conversations that move the institution forward. It's a very tricky balance to strike. Yeah, very good. Mike? Yeah, Sue, I'm going to break in for a second just to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. I'm here with Ann Greenhall, and we are in active discussion with Sue Uran, the President and CEO of Pew Charitable Trust. Let me stay on the theme that Ann raised and ask a, a kind of a follow-up question this way. When you began and in the early years with the Pew Charitable Trust, you probably had minimum contact with the board, didn't have to worry about the board. But now, of course, it's a, a big piece of your, of your job. Question is, how did you come to master the art of working with a board? Uh, learned along the way, it doesn't come naturally to most people. So so if you just expand on how you uh, became engaged with members of the board and learned to work with them well. Um, well, you know, one of the, the wonderful things about our board is that they really do have, um, they, are, are, they are uniformly focused on what is best for the institution. It is, um, and I know that is, is um, what the boards are supposed to do, but I have to say our board lives it on a daily basis. So from that perspective, they are deeply um, engaged in, in um, they wanna talk about substance, right? They wanna understand the substance. So for years as, as the, the person who led program, um, I was to some degree the source of a lot of the substance that they were interested in. So I think they developed a certain confidence that I knew, I knew how to do the work, but also that I understood the foundational elements of the institution. We are nonpartisan. We are a research-based institution. We are um, very careful in terms of managing the reputation of the institution because it's, it's, it's a big part of why we are able to be successful. And I think they had a lot of trust that, um, that those values um, were kind of in my bones as well. So that helps, that gives us a lot of space and trust. So one final question for me on this terrain, you probably spend a good bit of time working with the board chair. And there's an argument, you know it well, that the relationship between the chief executive and the board chair is vital for your side of that equation, but it's also vital for the board to be able to do its job. Could you offer a couple words on how you would characterize your relationship with the, the chair of the board of directors? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I have a, a, an incredibly thoughtful and, and helpful chair. You know, we, um, one of the things I've had to learn as I have, have worked more closely with the board in the last year is that um, boards don't have in-depth knowledge of the issues that you're working on, nor does the board chair, right? So you've got to figure out how to, how to sort of give them the information they need, keep them up to date, um, but not surprise them, no surprises. So with the board chair, we have regular check-ins um, so that I keep him up to date. Um, I keep him sort of in the loop on stuff. And, and again, he's become a, he has played the role, um, very much a, a role as a 
as a thought partner in this. Mm. He's he's very helpful. He offers um, he offers really good advice, but he's very careful to say, but this is your decision. Right. Mm. This is your here's kind of how I think about it. Here's what I think is really important. Um, for example, we've had many conversations of late about how do we think about reopening the office? I know you were just talking about uh, UPenn and the decisions there. It's a really challenging decision. Um, and he knows that he is not on the ground talking to staff or really cognizant of that, um, but he has opinions about it, right? So it's like, how do you begin to have those conversations in a thoughtful way? But it's I have a terrific relationship with my board chair. I'm really blessed. Great. So uh, Sue, the phrase I would use is, I think you're joined at the hip. <laughs> yes, yes, I think that's right. Okay, great. And let's get you back in. Right, very good. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Um, I'm, I'm interested in just picking up your point about um, achieving a nonpartisan approach. And that strikes me as especially challenging today when we have seen such political divide. So, Sue, could you talk a little bit more about how you how you do that? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's worth noting, and and we have conversations about this a lot internally because it is such a um, it is such a fundamental factor in in the identity of the institution and the work that we do. Um, it is it is challenging now because the environment is so hyper-partisan and often charged. And, and you kind of see people retreating to their sort of to their various camps and 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 sort of sniping at each other back and forth. Not a lot of necessarily productive conversation. But that said, there is still um, there's still a lot of opportunity to do bipartisan Policymaking. I know that people are very skeptical about that, but you know, just in the last year, we were able to work um, the culmination of a lot of, of years of work on on our environment side to to work on um, uh, congressional approval of an almost ten billion dollar investment in deferred maintenance for the national parks, um, mm -hmm. and and we had great bipartisan support for that. President Trump, I think, signed it last August. So you know that. Often the things that are bipartisan in nature that are just moving ahead don't get the, the coverage and the media and the attention that some of the more conflicted situations do. So I think that's one thing to keep in mind. Um, the other is that in this hyperpartisan environment, there has never been a time when nonpartisan institutions that rely on research and have a good reputation have been more important. I mean, as the public trust in institutions is, is at lower levels than I've seen for quite a while, where, um, where else would you look for, you know, where else will people look for help if they wanna actually figure out how to move forward? Who can they trust? Um, so I, I feel that it's critically important to hold on to Pew's role as a trusted yeah. empirical nonpartisan actor in various fields. Okay, very good. If I may pick up on that, I know from just doing a little homework before the show that Pew prides itself on a really rigorous and analytical approach to solving problems and you know supporting public policy. Can you talk a little bit about how you go about achieving that rigorous analytical approach? And I say that because I've come to appreciate that facts don't speak for themselves. We have to speak for them. So how do you ensure that the approach is rigorous and then how do you speak for the, um, you know, the knowledge that you've uncovered? 
Sure. Well, I can give you I can give you an interesting example of that. Um, about three years ago, we started a project, um, a research project on broadband access. We were interested in in whether and how um, different parts of the country were able to get access to um, quality high speed broadband because it was becoming such a fundamental necessity. In, in just general life today, everything from medical care mm -hmm. to education and, and um, everyone's become painfully aware of that of late. So we did um, three years of very good research to begin to scope out the size and scale of the challenge. And this is an interesting area because it's not just a public policy challenge. You've got a lot of private sector engagement in this and there's just not a lot of agreement about whether and how, how to move forward and, and where you're gonna get a lot of that last mile solution. So we did a lot of research. Um, we we began to spend a lot of time testifying, testifying in front of Congress, testifying to state legislatures, doing outreach to mm. different groups. And I think over that three-year period, um, we developed a, a fair amount of expertise. We developed a reputation as a trusted source of very good information. You know, we knew because we had a lot of contacts in the field, what questions to ask, where the gaps were, how to be helpful on the research side. And then the pandemic hit. And then all of a sudden it's like, everybody is beginning to understand how critically important broadband is. And maybe there's an interesting window of opportunity here on the policy front that was not there two years ago to begin to move forward and actually make some progress. So we pivoted and that research project has now become a project that is focused on expanding access with a, a variety of expanded research, technical assistance. How can we begin to move forward? I mean, if not now, it's not clear when we'll be able to really make significant progress on that issue. So that's kind of how we think about it. Yeah. Thank you for that. Mike, back to you. I'm gonna pick up on, on where the two of you have been talking, in particular about a range, a big range, all the way from broadband to helping out national parks. And behind that uh, observation is the notion that you are no doubt probably every day, but especially on some days, making big strategic decisions of what to invest in or what not to go into. Could you say a few words about how you go about making these strategic choices, national parks, broadband, and not others, for example? Sure. Um, I think you know we have. A, it's a little bit of a of a of a matrixed approach, right? There's there's in any given issue, there's what is it that that Pew as an institution is uniquely able and competent to do. So we try to find issues where we bring significant strengths to the table, and that's not every issue. Um, we look for issues where um, there are perhaps research gaps that we can begin to fill for example. Um, we look for issues where it's, it's in, in many cases on the advocacy side, feasible to drive change in some period of time and we can set some concrete achievable goals. So for the parks project, for example, that we worked on for several years, our goal was to close that multi-billion dollar deficit that existed in, in the maintenance of the parks. So we knew exactly what we were trying to do and we were driving in that direction. Um, the harder decisions for us come when that window of opportunity begins to close and we have to make some hard decisions about whether we continue to work or we simply um, kind of pack up our tents and, and, and hmm. go home at that point. So it's, it's, uh, it's it, you know, do we have partners in the field? Can we build a bipartisan coalition? Um, can we really get um, a range of folks who will build support for this so that if the policy is actually implemented, there's enough support that it doesn't get undercut um, yeah. shortly thereafter. So I think I hear this, just to put a couple of words on it, uh, in picking your, your directions, for example, to assist the national parks, 
Uh, number one, you want to be able to make a difference. So that that's an early criterion applied probably pretty consistently. Number two, it should be of national and maybe even international importance, but of transcendent importance to a lot of people. And number three, maybe less acknowledged explicitly, it should be a terrain that will bring bipartisan support to the table. So if those three pass your muster, what, what have I missed in trying to characterize your big decisions? I think I think that that does it. I think on the you know on this the size of the problem, I, you know, shorthand for that is big enough to matter, small enough to get done, right? So you've got to find kind of that sweet spot in there. Um, yes, and it, it really needs to be bipartisan. I think the one thing I'd add is there's got to be a very solid research base to suggest that the the approach that you are are um, recommending is going to have the effect that you think it's going to. When you're doing policy work, there are lots of unintended consequences if you're not really, really careful. So we make sure that we're not moving on ideology, but really sort of that there's a good empirical basis for our recommendations. I'm gonna pick up on a really important um, issue that leaders everywhere, regardless of institution or location, have to contend with. Uh, some days go very well and some days don't go so well. So we all suffer fet, uh, setbacks. We do need to learn from setbacks. And that's one of the maybe foundational elements of anybody's leadership development. And as you work in the public policy arena, uh, there's <laughs> plenty of opportunities for things uh, to not go so well, despite your best efforts. If you could offer up an example of, uh, of a, of a policy engagement that did not work out uh, and how you then learn from that so that the next time you got into a similar arena, you were better at uh, leading the charge for the change therein. Sure. Um, Pew's done uh, an enormous amount of work over the last 15 years in the area of um, criminal justice, sentencing and corrections <laughs> reform. And um, we developed a, a, a pretty robust and effective framework of working with states to think about um, how many people they were incarcerating, whether incarcerated, whether there were better ways to hold people accountable that would cost less, but also result in less crime and better public safety. And we, we worked with, I think, over 30 states um, and been really remarkably successful in that. But I think if, if you, um, one of the, the really challenging aspects was about 10 years ago, we engaged with the state of Arkansas. And the state of Arkansas was um, had a really challenging environment. They put a lot of people into prison. It was costing them a lot of money, and they had a um, they had a, a deep desire to put some reform packages in place. So. Um, we worked with them, they made some significant reforms, some real progress, and for about two years, things were going well, the prison populations were falling, the crime was falling, um, and then they had a parolee who killed a young man, and the politics mm. changed overnight, right, and um, reaction was very swift, there was a huge backlash, um, many changes were put in place, and the result was the largest single-year percentage increase in any state's prison population since the turn of the century. There's this great graph, if you look at it, where it's like prison population in Arkansas is going up, 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 they put the reform in place, you see this drop, um, hmm. and then the, the sort of the, the young man was murdered, and it starts climbing again. 
Um, and today, Arkansas has the fourth highest number of state prisoners per capita in the nation. So it's a it's a reminder that um, that, you know, the, the politics of any issue can change fast and criminal justice is a particularly challenging arena. But what we took from that in terms of lessons. Um, first thing is you, you have to you have to know that these things can happen. Um, it's more dramatic sometimes in the criminal justice space, but it happens in every policy space. So you have to proactively build resilience into the system as you're working on policy change. You need a wide range of champions who are going to really care about this issue before the policy change, during the policy change, and after the policy change. And that, that we didn't have that so much in Arkansas. Um, you have to invest in really good data and a narrative about why what you're doing matters so that when these things happen, you have a response that is empirical. Um, and you have to really make sure the public supports the change. And if you have those things, the results are likely to be more durable, not guaranteed, but that's something we now make sure that we pay attention to as we are doing policy work in any issue. So I've got a couple of themes out of that. Let me try them out on you and then we're gonna throw this over to Anne. Number one, uh, something about courage here. You know things happen as you get into politics. Uh, life is more unpredictable than in more technical terrain. So anyway, on your part, it takes some courage to get into an area where you are not going to be able to control so many things, and politics is certainly one of those. I've also heard, though, um, something about resilience. So things happen. You've got to just pick up the pieces and keep moving forward anyway. <laughs> Uh, in, in trying to characterize what you just uh, just offered up, are there a couple other qualities or sort of pieces of who you are that you would help our listeners appreciate could be important for their own ability to act courageously and to come back from setback? Well, the one I'd add, um, again, goes back to data. I think when things go south, um, which they will. I mean, a knowing that it's it's going to happen someday. I think is is worth knowing. You want to make sure you've got all your data ducks in a row, so that the reforms that we as an institution are recommending, we want to be very confident that they are in the public interest, um, and that we can support that with facts. That it's not just our idea about where things should go, but it's empirical. So people can disagree and they will disagree, but we need to be comfortable that we are on very solid ground. Um, and that's not an easy thing. And, and you mentioned courage. And I, um, I think this is just an interesting thing for people working in the policy arena. It does take courage to tackle um, controversial issues. There is no question about it. But the real courage, I think, is the legislators and the lawmakers that are moving mm -hmm. forward in this space. You know, they're elected, they make the decisions. We're providing a lot of data and technical assistance, but they're the ones that are on the front line um, and they're going to suffer the consequences, not so mm -hmm. much us. So I, I, you know, I give them all the credit for having courage on these issues. Great, great point. And jump in. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Sue, if I could follow up here, and I so appreciate your giving an example of when things go wrong, there's a setback. And I very much appreciate your comment about having good data and, and being able to talk about the data, have the narrative. Can you give an, another example in which there was a shock to the system? You were going along swimmingly, there was a shock but you did have the data and you were able to provide the narrative just as a point of contrast. 
Uh, oh, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I don't know if I have a specific example. I think that um, there have been other states in the criminal justice arena where they've mm -hmm. had similar events, and they have mm -hmm. not had that kind of. Uh, mm -hmm. um, I believe there was an there was sort of an event in Connecticut <laughs> at one point. Um, so you know, I don't know that I can point to a specific example, but I will mm -hmm. tell you that that more states than not are often able to ride these things through when they mm -hmm. when they sort of have the facts and the willingness to hold on. Okay, very good. How about if I uh, sort of pick up on this theme of um, you want to make a difference, as Mike said, you want a transcendent um, issue to address. I also heard you say that you want to be sure to play to Pew's strengths. <laughs> so if, if we could, would you just say a little bit about those areas in which Pew is really strong? Um. Well, you know, the thing that I would point to, um, which I think is is a little bit unique for Pew, is that, again, we're not an environmental organization or an education organization. We're not committed to working on a certain suite of issues forever. And, and you know, wonderful that institutions do, but our strategy is really to find issues, to find problems that we think we can make a contribution to. That's through data and good technical assistance from a nonpartisan perspective. Those are the, the, that's the sweep for us. But when, you know, and we look again to, to sort of be able to bend the curve on big and important issues. But when we're not making progress, we stop. And, and that's really hard and very different than a lot of other organizations. Um, mm -hmm. And I can, I can give you an example of where that was particularly difficult for me personally. And, and I think just from an issue perspective, one of the first programs I launched when I first be, became focused on the program side at Pew was on preschool education. Um, and we, uh, we worked with several states. We launched this um, in 2001. Um, and got it underway and had a lot of sort of, we're working with groups in the field, helping states invest in preschool education because it was a good education reform approach. And we thought the data was very solid and the politics were good. Um, we hit the little sort of the, the little tech bust of the early aughts, if you, if you remember that. So yeah. we kind of stalled a little bit in terms of states' willingness <laughs> to invest, but we wrote it out. Um, so from 2001 until 2007, we made really good progress in states around the country, increasing their investments, better quality, better research. And then 2008 hit. Um, and the recession hit. And it was, you know, we hung on for, I think, maybe two years after that, but it was very clear that states were not going to make substantial investments in much of anything for a while because they were reeling from the results of the recession. Um, so with, with, you know, with a heavy heart, if you will, yeah, we yeah. just shut that program down. Um, and it was, you know, to this day, I wonder if we could have figured out a better way to continue to move that thing forward. You know, the, the issue still resonates today and yeah. there are still states and, you know, federally we're making progress there. And I will tell you a lot of Pew alumni are playing critically important roles in states and the federal government as they move mm -hmm. this. So we continued in that vein, but mm -hmm. you know, that was a hard decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so thank you so much for that answer. It's very clear to me. It's not so much the content or the issue. It's really the method that is your strength, that data research in order to tackle issues that are, I mean, I loved your expression, big enough to matter, but small enough to actually get, get done. Yeah. Mike, back to you. 
Uh, well, I'm just going to and remind everybody that this is Leadership in Action Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Mike Hussein. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And we are in active discussion with Sue Uran, President and Chief Executive of the Pew Charitable Trust. I'm going to pick up, uh, Sue, as we turn back to you now on the great quote that Ann just uh, repeated, <laughs> big enough to matter, small enough to get done, but some things can get done that are bigger than something that you can do yourself if you can effectively partner with other nonprofit organizations and foundations. Just uh, walk us through your thinking about when, when it's important to partner and when it's more important to go on your own. Well, that's a, that's a terrific question. Um, and that's one we are struggling to kind of have some clear parameters about within the institution. Um, I think it's become very clear to me that, that if you want to make a change, um, a really significant change. You've got to have a scope and scale of ambition in some cases that outstrip the ability of any institution to do it by themselves. No one institution has the resources or the competencies or the skills to be able to move at scale on really critical public issues. Um, so I think, you know, if I had to say from a portfolio, from a portfolio perspective, some of the smaller, more targeted issues that we could do ourselves, um, maybe a third of what we do, but maybe more than that should be mm. a limited number of big and impactful partnerships. So uh, here again, I'll give you an example. We just launched this week, something called the Blue Nature Alliance. Now this is a partnership that we've been working on for two years, right? So so this is, this is one reason why you, I think it's hard if you, if you wanted to do everything in partnerships, it would be a, a huge lift as an institution because these are hard to put together. Um, this is a, a multifaceted partnership with us, with Conservation International, one of the larger premier international environmental organizations, the Global Environment Facility, which is a government institution, the Mindaroo Foundation, which is based in Australia, and the Robin Melanie, Mel Melanie Walton Foundation. So we have a really interesting cast of characters and our goal here um, with now north of 100 million Million dollars is to um, is to protect um, almost seven million square miles of the ocean because it, it's a carbon contribution. It will capture more carbon, so it's a global warming contribution. It will protect biodiversity. It protects sea life. It's a critically important contribution to protecting 30% of the ocean ultimately, which is where researchers say we need to go if we want to maintain sort of the planet that we all um, know and love. So um, to be able to create a partnership like this means that you've got to identify what everybody's bringing to the table. It's more than just money. It's different sets of complementary skills. Mm. You've got to create a governance structure that everybody agrees on. You've got to hammer out an MOU that takes a very long time to get to the level of detail where nobody's surprised, everybody's in agreement, and everybody knows how we're going to move forward. Um, the two years that we spent developing this was critical, not just on the substance, but developing trust among the partners that we're all working toward the same ends and we're going to kind of, you know, join hands and step forward and do this together. And that's not an easy thing to do with different, very different institutions with very different sort of, you know, um, cultures and goals and yeah. boards and goals. Sue, very instructive. Thank you on that. Uh, with not too many more minutes uh, remaining, I'm gonna turn this now to inside Pew Charitable Trust. A thousand people, it's a big organization and you lead externally, you put together partnerships, but of course to get things done, you have to lead with the board and you have to lead with the 1000 people who work for you. 
On the inside, what has been one of your tougher decisions in the last 12 months in particular, uh, as you've been <laughs> concerned like everybody in a leadership position with the fact that uh, most people are at home and all kinds of other things are a little bit unwound at the moment? So to sharpen the question, what's one of your tougher leadership decisions over the last 12 months? Oh, there have been so many. You know, it's it's been such an interesting time. You know, by uh, uh, they they announced that I was taking on the CEO position about I think a week after we shut down the, the building, right? So I have literally not seen face to face my staff since I became CEO. I mean, thankfully, I know most of them, so it makes life a little easier than if I was coming in cold. But it's just a very odd time, right? So closing the building, you know, shutting down when the pandemic first hit. Um, I remember vividly making those early decisions and it was like, um, it was so bizarre, right? Because it, it was like one of the first ones that we made was not to have one of uh, uh, our international conferences. And we agonized over that. We agonized, it was, that was in, I think, February. We agonized and agonized and agonized and made the decision. And like two weeks later, it was like, holy cow, thank God we shut it down, <laughs> right? It was yeah. like crystal clear. So, you know, one of the things I learned early in the pandemic that it was, very hard to be too conservative as this thing was unfolding so rapidly. Um, I think one of the more difficult decisions, and we're in the process of making two different decisions. One is what does work look like when we get back to the office? Because I think that that environment has fundamentally changed around the country. The expectations that employees have about flexibility and when you can come in and how often you come in and what does it mean to be in the office versus being able to work at home, whole new landscape. So we have spent a lot of time over the last six months surveying our staff, talking to them about what's important, trying to figure out how much face-to-face -face time you need to, to have a strong culture versus the flexibility that people really want and need in their lives. So um, coming up with a good, and we will take a hybrid approach, and we're going to have a very different approach moving forward. That has been a really hard decision. Yeah, terrific. Good. And let's get you back in here. All right. Thank you, Mike. Uh, so you mentioned the word culture, and I'm just curious how you would describe the culture of Pew. Well, we are a, we are a very, um, I think, somewhat driven organization. We're very goal-oriented. Um, we are very focused on how can we help, um, very mission-driven, if yeah. you will. The, mm -hmm. we, have a, we have folks that work on a whole host of different issues and they care deeply about them, but they also care about their colleagues' issues. So I think that's one of our overriding cultural attributes. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious about how you anticipate then moving forward, maintaining those cultural values in a hybrid work environment. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, it's a great question. And um, we're going to put in place this hybrid environment. And I know you were talking about some of the challenges that you're going to be facing at Penn. I think everybody is going to be facing these. Um, what does a hybrid work environment look like, right? How do you function in a meeting when half the people are on video and half the people are in person? How do you not disadvantage right. folks who aren't in the room? Right in a in a in a sort of really meaningful way. So I think we're going to put in place this hybrid structure. And I, my promise to our staff was we're going to we're going to have it in place until you know a, a year plus after we reopen, which not clear exactly when that will be yet. And we're going to collect data. We're going to look for metrics as to how well it's working, both on the productivity side and on the cultural side, because mm -hmm. it has to be more than I think this is working. We have to have some data. We're a data driven organization. <laughs> yes. 
Um, and then we're gonna we're gonna re-examine it at the end of 2022 because policy shouldn't be etched in concrete, right? You can't be changing it every two weeks because people's you know people will just not be able to cope. But you have to always allow some flexibility as you learn. So it's it's going to be a dynamic couple of years as we emerge from this pandemic. I think. Mike, do I have time for one more? Yes, of course. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sue, I'm just wondering for those uh, in our audience who might like to follow in your footsteps, you know, what would you advise a young person who is eager to make a difference in the world, especially in the area of policy? Uh, well, a, a couple things. Um, and I was sort of, as I was talking to the Fell students last night, I think this, this came up. One is, one is just how important it is to be able to communicate clearly to different audiences. I think, Mike, you were asking earlier about working with the board. Mm -hmm. One of the best things I ever did in, in about the seven years I worked for the state legislature in Minnesota was I learned to communicate with legislators. And state mm -hmm. legislators um, are a little like board members. They are generalists. They come at things from a range of perspectives. They're really smart, really capable. Um, but you have to, to bring things to them in a very clear and accessible and thoughtful way. Um, they aren't going to sit there for an hour while you, you meander through technicalities of, of you know, the arcanery of different issues, you will lose your audience, right? Yeah. I learned how to talk to legislators and that is a skill that has stood me in good stead um, right. within the institution, with the staff, with the board in almost every environment. Um, the other, the other um, was a piece of advice I would give to, to people, which is the, the, the great Wayne Gretzky said, you know, you, you, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Yeah. Um, I think it's important for people to give themselves the, the, the freedom to experiment a little bit, to try a job. If it doesn't work out, that's okay, right? You learn something, um, you mm -hmm. learn what you like, what you don't like, what you can do, what you want to do, um, and you move on from there. Oh, that's great advice. Wonderful, Mike. <laughs> All right, as I said at the outset, uh, Sue and Ann, we're going to do a brief review. And I actually am going to start. This is a little bit on the uh, more trivial side, uh, but uh, I'll say it. it's not trivial. It's, it's a very specific point, and that is in leadership, avoid the arcane. I really like that point. So <laughs> t tell me why it matters in words that I can understand. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, Sue, what would you add uh, by way of review for people who really want to hang on to some of these ideas for their own benefit? Well, I think, um, you know, it, communicating research to, to, to lay audiences of any stripe, I think you just, you have to be able not only to speak clearly, but you have to be relevant. You mm -hmm. And, and it, it doesn't, you can't let yeah. the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? I mean, so you've got to balance all those things. You will never have enough facts to be 1000% sure about any issue. So when are you sure enough that you're okay moving forward and making recommendations? You've got to kind of right. figure that out, right? Uh, so I'm going to come back to you on that one in particular. One institution that we work with says 70%. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, okay, that's fair. <laughs> okay. You so know, don't, I, don't, don't shoot for the, from the hip, but yeah. don't, don't wait for perfect. So yeah. To, to put it on a scale, are you around 70% yourself? 
well, I, I think of it differently. I write. I, I remember seeing a cartoon years ago where there's this scientist and he's writing this super cal, you know, long and complicated equation on a chalkboard. And then there's a little box. And in that box, it says, and a miracle occurs. And then you get to the end, right? There's this like little leap of faith that yeah. you make. And, yeah. and maybe it's 70%, maybe it's 80%. I think you kind of get a sense of it as you work in the field. It's like, okay, that's enough, right? Mm -hmm. And then the counter to that is, if they're going to make a decision with no data, is that better than yeah. what you've got? You know, so you've also got to weigh that. Great point there, Anne. Well, Mike, um, I, I really, I'm taken by uh, Sue's comment about, and I think this is true for any of us, no matter where we are in whatever organization, no matter where we are in the hierarchy, that we'd be wise to tackle issues that matter. But they're also, you know, so they're big, but they're small enough that we can actually get them done. I just think there's a lot of wisdom in that, no matter who we are or where we are in the hierarchy. Great, super. So we're a couple of minutes from concluding. I've got two final questions now, really back to you, but in the vein of, of summing up, <laughs> if somebody would look at your career and, and what you do now with Pew Charitable Trusts and say, that's what I want to do. I'm 24. I've finished a university, but maybe I'm in a graduate program. Maybe I'm working for a legislature, but I would really like to get into the uh, nonprofit and charitable sector. What advice would you have for that 24-year-old? Oh, well, you know, I think there again, it's, it's uh, simply a matter of looking for where there might be an opportunity. And maybe it's not something that you you um, it's not as fleshed out as you would like it to be. When I came to Pew to um, do evaluation in a foundation, I had no idea what that really meant, right? It was kind of a cutting edge approach. Not a lot of people did it. And for me, that was part of the appeal. It wasn't well-defined. So I would look for things that are not so much well-defined because A, you'll learn a lot and B, you maybe will get to put a little bit of your own stamp on it. And that's a great way to learn. Yep. Really good way to sum sum up a, a life well lived. Final question for you, for those who would like to learn more about the Pew Charitable Trust, what do you recommend? Well, we have a great website. Um, you can follow um, me and a lot of my colleagues on Twitter. Um, and I would also recommend the Pew Research Center, which is our subsidiary, which does an enormous amount of um, polling and survey and research work on current um, current and topical issues uh, and take a look at their work. Yeah, that's great. All right, so terrific. Uh, thank you for joining us on the program. Thank you mm -hmm. for doing what you do at the yeah, Pew the Press and, and for what th that organization has done for many people around the world. Uh, I do want to remind listeners that if you um, want to get in touch with us, you know where we are, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter as well. Once again, a special thanks to our guest, uh, Sue Yurhan. I'd like to thank my producer, uh, our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Took. I'm Mike Yusim. I'm here with Ann Greenhall, and you've been listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, Sirius XM, Channel 132. See you next week. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 